I went up to the stage and I said, Good evening. I am a domestic worker just like you. I think we need to do something for ourselves because nobody is going to do anything for us. And they all started clapping and said, You are going to lead us. The thing that I learned today is that 60% of strikes in 2022 were all education workers. Well, honestly, as a musician, since I was like 15, uh, you heard in the corners of conversation when things about bad pay, bad deals, bad this, bad that. Here every now and then, growing up, I'd hear, oh yeah, there's like a musician's union, yada, yada, yada. We were told they do not recognize us as a group and that we could sit there for as long as we'd like and nothing would change. So we did sit there for as long as we'd like. We were there for about eight hours um, and that was the first day of our ULP strike. We grew up knowing about Elvis. Black people chasing him with autograph books are like, oh no. We didn't do that with the temptations. We didn't do that with the Supremes. Black people did not behave in the same way. You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. On this week's show, the Solidarity Center podcast remembers Myrtle Vitboy, General Secretary of the South African Domestic Service and Allied Workers Union and President of the International Domestic Workers Federation. Then we'll hear about the strike at Fordham University from My Labor Radio, interviews and information about Working Americans broadcast weekly on WELT 95.7 FM in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Next, Evan Tuohy, the newly elected vice president of AFM Local 33, which represents musicians in Tucson, Arizona, talks with the Words and Work podcast about what AFM can do for independent musicians. Words and Work is produced by the Tucson chapter of the National Writers Union and Downtown Radio. Then we have two reports involving workers and the movies. From Labor Radio on KBU FM, Portland's Living Room Theater workers go on strike and unionize, forming the Cinema Workers Union. And from the Labor Goes to the Movies podcast, which I co-host with Elise Bryant, we dive deep into the films Blonde and Elvis with Carnegie Mellon professor Kathy Newman, who wrote Marilyn and Elvis, Dead Labor in the Age of Streaming. That's all coming up on this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. And if you like what you hear, please take a moment, subscribe, and share the show. It's what we call sonic solidarity. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. The following news article is a service of the Solidarity Center podcast. Fierce and beloved labor leader Myrtle Whitboy passes away. The global labor movement lost a bright light and a pioneering leader on January 16th when Myrtle Whitboy, General Secretary of the South African Domestic Service and Allied Workers Union and President of the International Domestic Workers Federation, passed away after a long and valiant battle with cancer. Myrtle began her career in the 1960s as a domestic worker in apartheid South Africa. A newspaper article about domestic workers moved her to write a letter to the editor. Myrtle was just 18 when, with the help of a local journalist, 
she convened the first meeting of domestic workers in Cape Town in 1965. As I entered, I saw about 350 workers all looking at me, and I said to myself, Oh, Lord, what now? Myrtle recalled in an interview. And I went up to the stage and I said, Good evening. I am a domestic worker just like you. I think we need to do something for ourselves because nobody is going to do anything for us. And they all started clapping and said, You are going to lead us. It was the beginning of a lifelong fight to secure rights and protections for domestic workers. At that time, domestic workers in South Africa were not allowed to move freely and needed identification to enter the white neighborhoods where they worked. We needed an ID to identify that we were allowed to come to the white area to work, but we could go to church, Myrtle said. The workers formed a committee in 1979 because they could not form a union. Their church meetings served as cover for committee meetings, even after the government banned all labor organizations in 1986 for fear they were ANC-affiliated. As General Secretary of the South African Domestic Service and Allied Workers Union, Myrtle fought for a national minimum wage increase and compensation for domestic workers injured on the job. In 2011, she helped lead an international coalition of domestic workers to secure passage of the ILO Convention on Decent Work for Domestic Workers, C-189, which ensured domestic workers the same basic rights as other workers. The convention marked the unprecedented involvement of informal women workers in setting ILO standards. Myrtle became the first chair of the International Domestic Workers Network, and when the network formalized as a federation, Myrtle was elected the first president of the International Domestic Workers Federation, the only global union founded and led by women of color. Myrtle was often recognized for her work on behalf of domestic workers. In 2013, she accepted the AFL-CIO's George Meany Lane Kirkland Human Rights Award which recognizes international leaders and organizations who have overcome significant hurdles in the fight for human rights. In 2015, she was awarded the Fairness Award, which honors outstanding leaders dedicated to bringing economic justice, fairness, and equality to poor and marginalized communities. Myrtle was serving her second term as IDWF president when she passed. Under her leadership, the Federation expanded to 87 affiliates in 67 countries, representing 670,000 domestic workers. Their Nothing About Us Without Us motto that achieved ILO Convention 189 served as a clear model for the fight to eliminate violence and harassment in the world of work, resulting in the passage of ILO Convention 190 in 2019 an effort led by affected workers, largely women workers and informal workers. Upon news of her passing, tributes came in from domestic workers around the world, sharing stories of how Myrtle inspired courage among workers who have been made invisible by employers and governments to raise their voices and stand firm together in their demands for dignity and respect. Myrtle was bold and had a clear moral vision and was relentless in building up alliances to see a vision of equal rights for domestic workers to fruition, 
Myrtle's legacy of courage, justice, and sisterhood will live on for generations, said Alexis de Simone, global lead for domestic worker rights at the Solidarity Center. And now, here's your next episode of My Labor Radio. All right, how you doing, everybody? This is Mark, your host on My Labor Radio. Thanks for joining us for this edition. We talk to Olivia A. Wood, who works in the downtown New York area. She's a lecturer at City College of New York in the English department. Olivia is also a delegate to the PSC of CUNY and the Delegate Assembly. And at the English department, she is a steward and bargaining committee member for Fordham Faculty United. So let's talk about Fordham for a hot second, because they're in the midst of some crazy stuff going on. And I saw on Twitter today, too, that you found the neat little posting that the uh, chancellor, whoever it is, who's... The provost. Provost, thank you, put out saying, hey, the union voted to go on strike, but we're going to go to the table and really take care of things. What? I mean, your thoughts when you first read it. I, I love what you posted, but talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So they have not been very communicative in their university-wide emails up to this point. So mm-hmm. since we're getting really close to the strike deadline, we're 13 days out now, I've certainly been worrying a lot about, okay, what are they going to try and do right. and how misleading, how awful is it going to be? Mm-hmm. Um, and so this email, I was actually really surprised that it was so short yeah, And really only one problem, which is like, oh, the SEIU decided this. At Columbia, the grad workers ratified their contract almost exactly a year ago. It was last January. And apparently Columbia has just decided not to do any of the dues withholding stuff. So they have no dues to do anything with. And then all of those union members haven't been able to vote in the UAW stuff because they're not dues paying members because Columbia isn't deducting any of their uh, when I looked at the 48,000 University of California members that we had in the multiple locals there, that's what really got my attention a year ago, how big it was. That was that that strike lasted a lot longer than I thought it was going to last. What were your thoughts when you first saw it take off and then how long it took to wrap things up? Yeah, it was really amazing. Just the sheer numbers, especially spread out that much. Yes. Um, Like my union at CUNY, the PSC, we're about 28,000 people, but we're much closer together. So to organize something that big across such a big area was really impressive. Um, And then the thing that I know most folks over here were really excited about watching was the cost of living adjustment demand. So it was really, really frustrating when that was given up so quickly. And I know the rationale was like, maybe if we give up enough all at once, that'll be a gesture of goodwill and then they'll give us some stuff, but that's not going to happen. So they they lost the cost of living. They lost that $11,000. They lost cops off campus. They lost the disability provisions. Mm-hmm. I'm sure some other things that, that I'm not aware of. The thing that I learned today is that 60% of strikes in 2022 were all education workers of different stripes. In every corner of the United States. The part-time faculty at Barnard won 11500 per class, which is really good. It's the biggest wage per class that I know of. Um, and our professional organization in the MLA um, that's what they say should be the minimum for everyone. Whoa. Whoa. Not not even adjusted for cost of living. So right. they won that. And the NYU adjuncts got not quite that much, but close because yeah. of that. And then right. we brought that number into our parting sessions and we're not going to get anywhere close to that. Um, right. 
you can at least point to it and be like, right. other people are getting this. So you better have a damn good reason why you're not giving us that. And right. the reason is that all the public adjuncts at CUNY are paid so much less than everyone else that the private schools can pay kind of whatever, as long as it's higher than that. And they'll yeah. always have people to staff their classes. The other thing is just how many more new unions are announcing every time. After I wrote the first draft of this article, Yale won their union, Northwestern won their union. Right. Someone else announced their union. And yeah. then the librarians announced their strike and, just and, while this was in editing. And this right. was published, what, four days ago? And four there's a bunch ago, of right. stuff that's happened since then. Syracuse grad workers just announced their campaign today. I just saw that. I just saw that on Twitter today. Yeah. So this is only growing. This is like a big snowball coming down the hill. That's Boy, what it I, feels like. Out of need, out of the disrespect. And that's where we come to. Once you're treated like that for any length of time, you're like, you know what? Hey, we can sit down and have a coffee and start talking about it and realize hey, there's 64 of us. We all agree on the same thing. Yeah. Screw them. Let's stop this. Olivia, thank you very much. Thank you. And the best of luck to you in your negotiations at Fordham. Thank you. Thanks for Take having care. me. Hello, this is Ted Brzezelski. It's Sunday morning, time for another episode of Words and Work. Today we have Evan Tui, who's with the Grand Voodoo Band. Evan was just recently elected to be the vice president of Local 33 of the American Federation of Musicians. We've got lots of good stuff here, so we're just going to go ahead and get started with this interview. As a, a uh, kind of an independent musician, what does a union like the, U the AFM do for you? What kind of protections can you get out of the union? Well, honestly, as a musician, since I was like... 15. Uh, you heard in the corners of conversation when things about bad pay, bad deals, bad this, bad that. You hear every now and then growing up, I'd hear, oh yeah, there's like a musician's union, yada, yada, yada. And what would end up happening is like the image of the union is very symphonic and established. So for the longest time, I was like, that's not for me. That sucks because I'm just out here playing guitar and singing. I'm not a symphonic player. That stinks that I don't have representation. And then I did just a little bit more research and started looking into their freelance department, basically, and started learning that it's open to not just people who play in the symphony, jazz musicians who pop around in clubs or rock and rollers or a folkster or whatever. And what the union does for me is it gives me <clears throat> a sense of security when I am able to present a contract. What ends up happening is we have a contract as a freelance musician that we present to our club owner or management. And we say, here's this, it's got our names on it. We have a minimum wage that's been all calculated out. And this contract allows us to not only establish a standard for my band, but starts establishing a standard for everybody else around here. And if somebody balks out of that contract, I have a union behind me to help me out. Or if there's a place in town that is consistently mistreating their music workers, that gets brought up in a meeting and they go on a list of do not work for this person. And it's a level of security and insurance that 
spending all this time playing music for so long has been a godsend. And I honestly wish that I had joined earlier. One of the things on your Facebook page, you have a picture of yourself with a Spotify check. And I think it's a lot of it's blacked out. So I don't see what the amount is, but it's not much from what I understand. And, but there is this weird thing with sites like Spotify and Bandcamp and others where, you know, as a quote unquote struggling musician, I, I use that term very cautiously, but someone who is trying to get out there and be creative and show what they want to do, there these platforms have made it really easy to do that, but there's not much in the way of compensation. Absolutely not. I want to tell you, I had to self-publish my stuff after sending countless emails and letters and such, trying to find some sort of label to pick me up. And it's the whole music industry is being crushed from the top down, basically, to where, you know, at a certain point, I don't blame record labels for not taking a risk on somebody because it's profit, profit driven and not artistically driven. And so I just, as far as compensation goes, it's too low. It's been far too low, especially when you look up something like Spotify's crazy profits that are just up and up every single quarter. They have record breaking profits almost every quarter. And again, on the bottom end, we're just told to work hard. This is for any worker, really, is work hard, hold your tongue, don't join any union or anything, quality or quantity over quality. If you put out a dozen singles and they're all, you know, poorly produced, but it's, you're, it's a matter of getting out content as opposed to the quality of content that's being produced. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. And that's a good place to leave this off, I think. I really appreciate you letting me come on and have a chat and all that good yeah. stuff. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Evan. Thank all of you for listening. Words and Work has been a presentation of the National Writers Union Tucson chapter and Downtown Radio. See you next week. Waiting for lunch break as the minutes drag so slow. Take courage, turn the volume up. Good evening and welcome to Labor Radio. Our topic this evening is Cinema Workers Organize. Our guests are Audra Sweetland and Jay Marks of United Cinema Workers. Audra and Jay work at the Living Room Theater on Southwest 10th Avenue, just up the street from Powell's Books. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. So tell us about your working conditions and how, how they've changed over time. What, what are the main issues that caused workers to want to organize? Well, everyone at the theater was very close. It helped us in the long run because we were all friends outside of work. And that really strengthened our solidarity before we knew what that term meant. But our, we were a little too close, I think, with each other and with management, and it created a environment where that boundary could be crossed by both sides. And what changed is that corporate decided that that boundary was going to be instituted for the employees only now, starting now, and how they were going to mark that differentiation was by just firing one of the employees to prove a point that they could. So the... The following Friday, you went to the office of the, the CEO, Steve Herring, and the COO, Nick Cruz, and what happened What happened next? So before that, um, 
when we had initially met together to speak about the strike, we had included somebody who was not necessarily on our side and was not part of our, he was a manager who we thought would be amenable to our situation. It was a mistake that we made right off the bat. And he, um, he snitched immediately. And so I got pulled into work the next day and told not to speak about my working conditions at work or outside of work with my coworkers. Um, and that was the grounds for the ULP strike. And as soon as that happened, we got together, we wrote up a list of needs from our workplace of what we'd be needing wage-wise and some other benefits and like a more clear outline for HR personnel. And we delivered that itinerary for a meeting um, to our bosses on Thursday morning at 9 a.m. and said, we'll be back here tomorrow at 9 a.m. ready to have a discussion about these topics. We came in full force. Um, there were eight of us at the time. Some people have, have quit since then, but um, we were prepared to meet. We were ready to negotiate and they were not even there. So when they did get there a few hours later, they, we were told they do not recognize us as a group and that they refused to do that and that we could sit there for as long as we'd like and nothing would change. So we did sit there for as long as we'd like. We were there for about eight hours um, and that was the first day of our ULP strike. Well, the theater closed for two days and said on their Facebook page, our theater will be closed Wednesday, January 11th and Thursday, January 12th to give our staff a much needed break. Uh, so what did you do then? You know, we got some formal documents together, had further discussions about what we agree on, and just started focusing on the ins and outs within our fellow co-workers. We took that time to sign union cards and file an official petition with the um, National Labor Board for our own independent union. So the first two days off were a blessing in disguise. Um, they have also, that Wednesday, Thursday off, is for the foreseeable future. They've taken away our last set, so we're closing three hours early than we, or three hours earlier than we normally do. Um, at this point, this seems to be their their major union busting tactic is to cut the hours of the business so they can cut the hours of the employees in kind of a retaliatory effort. It seems, you know, we'll see how that impacts us moving forward and how long they can stick with that now that they do have the staff. So how do you hope to win a first contract and what do you expect living room theater management will do? Right now we're in limbo with the National Labor Relations Board. We're waiting for our employer's statement of position. We've provided them with paperwork to be voluntary recognized, which never happens, but a girl can hope. Um, and then we'll be able to make it to election at which point we can start negotiating our contract. And we have some, you know, things we're willing to compromise on. We have some hard lines. Personally, I'm very excited to get into those negotiations because I think it'll be a learning experience for me. And I feel that we're very well prepared and have more than the right to ask for what we're asking for. It's intriguing that two biopics of the 20th century's most famous and most working class superstars have appeared in 2022, says our guest on today's show, Carnegie Mellon professor Kathy Newman who wrote about the films Blonde and Elvis on the Working Class Perspectives blog in a piece entitled Marilyn and Elvis, Dead Labor in the Age of Streaming. Here's our lively conversation with Kathy. So we're here to, we're here to talk about Blonde and Elvis. Six hours of my life I'm never getting back. Mm. <laughs> so Austin Butler 
does not look like Elvis, but the energy and the effort and really the labor he put into, I think, reproducing a certain element of Elvis's sex appeal. I just think his performance is extraordinary capturing that and that Baz Luhrmann kind of falls in love with Austin Butler and then presents that version of Austin Butler's Elvis to us. Yes. So again, I think Baz Luhrmann is looking for attention and he's getting it. And a similar scene, actually, Elise, that you pointed out with the dress is the scene where they have Elvis performing Trouble, which he actually sang in King Crawford that was written for him for that movie, which is set in New Orleans or King. I might have the title wrong, but it's a it's a Louisiana, New Orleans set movie, but he never sang it in a performance or certainly not at that point, like 1958, whatever year that is. But there are 1500 individual shots of that performance in the movie from all these different angles. Austin Butler's like crazy ability to get up on his toes the way that Elvis did and the reaction of the crowd and the reaction of the police. And the suggestion of the film is that that performance was so sexual and so over the top that they had to send him to the military to like basically cool down the libidos of the American (laughs) 14 year old girl. But the time stamp is all wrong because from that performance to the military, it's two years. Here's the thing that disturbs me. I'm sorry, because this is what bothered me is the portrayal of black people in that film. Every black singer is like this. They have their mouth is wide open. The camera is shooting from above their head and that's all you can see is their mouth and their teeth or their missing teeth. And it's just, really? Come on, y'all. Give me, give me a break here. Give me a break here. I Yeah, he grew up poor and he grew up in the African-American community, but no. I have to tell you, Kathleen, we watched Elvis together. I felt very white. It was funny because we didn't actually talk about it during the film. Oh no. We were good. <laughs> but no, but I'm just saying we both had that reaction very uncomfortable w- with that. And I was curious about, because Elise went off. That was the first thing you, you talked about after the well, film. There's this whole thing that we grew up knowing about Elvis. And we knew that Elvis was alleged to have taken some of his movements or whatever from the African-American community or songs. That was definitely the, you ain't nothing about well, the hound The song, the 100%. Yeah. That was no, but that was it. That was it. There was really no other. And like black people chasing him with autograph books. I was like, oh no, we didn't was, do, we didn't do that was, with the Temptations. We didn't do that with the Supremes. Black people did not behave in the same way. And I'm also not sure about this, but I've been told that at least somewhere with Frank Sinatra, that women were planted to do the screaming thing. Cause you will not see a concert of black people in the fifties or sixties, any of our favorite groups with black girls going, who's the Temptations? Always oh, Marvin Gaye. You won't see it. Because it's culturally not happening, didn't happen in our community. So I even wondered about this whole thing about the whole, this is falling out. He was so sexual and yada, yada. Did they plan it? Did they plant that? Or was so sexually repressed so that they had one opportunity to express their sexuality and they did it with Elvis? I have that just isn't. So there, there are a bunch of headlines that Lerman scans and those are a hundred percent accurate. So. Elvis was considered a sexual threat. That yeah, I, think, no, I believe that. I yeah. believe that. I don't doubt that. But the so I am hearing what you're saying about like almost the over minstrelization of the black characters in the yes. film. Well, that's but a good my point. entry like point to knowing about Elvis and getting curious about him 
was research I did on the radio station WDIA in Memphis, mm -hmm. which is the first all black radio station in the country. And it's where BB King gets his start as mm -hmm. a disc jockey. King basically walks into the station. He's 16 years old. He's holding a guitar and he starts to play. And they're like, yes, let's, let's figure out how to get you, how to get you involved in this industry. And one of his first jobs was to sing commercials for like the Pepsi thing, very like pedestrian. So like, a and Elvis, there's a lot of photographs of him performing at WDIA's annual fundraiser. And they're in the archives there of the radio station. So it, I don't think there's like the fraternity, like, I, I don't get the sense of an intimacy, but there was like maybe an ease and comfortability. That's what I took from my research on this radio station is that Elvis was in this community and was not considered an alien in this community. Whew, that is it for today's show, Elise, and I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Professor Kathy Newman about Marilyn and Elvis, dead labor in the age of streaming. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time. We are the same, you and I. We are two odd, lonely children reaching for eternity. The greatest show on earth. Elvis has left the building. And that is it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the more than 100 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got links to the shows you heard today in the show notes. You'll find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org. You can also find them. Use the hashtag laborradiopod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, edited this week by Patrick Dixon and Mel Smith. I produce the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, Labor Radio Net. Find out more on our website, laborradionetwork.org. For the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show. <laughs>